I am delighted, as I said, to have the um, American Civil War Museum as a co-sponsor for the lecture. And as we sometimes do when we have these co-sponsorships, I am also very happy to have a representative from that organization here to do the introduction of the speaker. In this case, co-CEO of the American Civil War Museum, Christy Coleman. Christy, would you come up to the stage, please? Good afternoon. It's an absolute pleasure for us to be a co-sponsor of the Banner Lecture Series, particularly for this event. Um, for those of you that have been following the work that we're trying to do here in town, um, the story of the war is not just about soldiers. It is about the folks left behind. It is the women who took their roles and the children who suffered along with them. It is stories of communities. It is soldiers of stories of politicians and everyday folk. So this uh, speaker today, Miss Abbott, definitely fits the bill for us. Karen Abbott is the New York Times best-selling author of Sin in the Second City, Madams, Ministers, Playboys, and The Battle for America's Soul and American Rose, A Nation Laid Bare, The Life and Times of Gypsy Rose Lee. Yeah, she likes to write the juicy stuff. <laughs> and quite frankly, I can't wait to hear uh, what she's doing now because, again, these are the stories that often get left behind but tell us so much about ourselves and our communities. Um, she also contributes to the Smithsonian Magazine's history blog, Past Imperfect, and writes for Disunion, the New York Times series about the Civil War. She lives with her husband and two African gray parrots, Poe, and Dexter. So, without further ado, I'd like to bring forward Ms. Karen Abbott. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for coming today. Uh, thank you to Paul and to Christy for that wonderful introduction, and to the Virginia Historical Society and the uh, American Civil War Museum for having me today. It is a delight to be back in the South, um, and a delight especially to be back in Richmond, where I spent uh, a couple weeks uh, in a researching, especially Elizabeth Van Lu, who I'm sure everybody in this room is well aware of. Uh, and I will never forget, um, the uh, at the time it was called the Museum of the Confederacy when I was here back in 2011. Uh, and she said, uh, the, the director of the library there, Teresa Roan, this lovely lady, um, advised me to spend some time looking at the newspaper clippings leading up to Elizabeth Van Lu's death um, and talked about how all of the Richmond papers were sort of lying in wait. <laughs> She's almost dead. She's almost dead. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, there are all of these uh, the sort of countdown to her death in 1900, uh, which was true. <laughs> um, and uh, anyway, uh, despite that, it's great to be back in the South. And I usually start uh, my talk here today uh, uh, discussing you know, how I came to be interested in this book. Um, I was born and raised in Philadelphia, and I moved to Atlanta in 2001, uh, which was quite a culture shock. Um, I had, a, <laughs> to say the least, um, I had to get used to seeing Confederate flags on the lawns. Um, there were constant jokes about the War of Northern Aggression. Uh, and the, the topic of the Civil War uh, seeped into daily life and conversation down there in a way it never does up north. And I was really sort of uh, shocked by this. 
And the point was really driven home for me one day when I was stuck in traffic in 400. If anybody has ever visited Atlanta, you know how bad traffic on 400 is. Um, for two hours behind a pickup truck with a bumper sticker that said, don't blame me, <laughs> I voted for Jeff Davis. <laughs> and I just thought, wow. <laughs> Um, so I was, you know, had the opportunity to think more about the Civil War for about two hours looking at this thing. And my mind always goes to, well, what were the women doing? Um, as Christy indicated in her introduction, I'm always interested in what the women were doing. Um, and of course, some women at this time did things like knitting socks and sewing uniforms for the soldiers, or they would hold bazaars to raise money uh, for supplies for the soldiers. Um, and there were some women who went a little bit further than that, and I found uh, some interesting cartoons about this, um, including this. They became informal recruiting officers, and they would shirk, uh, shame any man who shirked his duty to fight. And here's an example of that, a woman dressed in pants with her man cowering in front of her, and she's basically telling him, either you enlist or I enlist. Um, and there was an, uh, great, uh, a great story about this I read during my research. Uh, where it was one southern lady shamed her fiancé by sending over her slave. Um, and the slave had a package and a note. And the package contained a dress and a crinoline, and the note said, wear these or volunteer. <laughs> and the man volunteered. <laughs> and, and some women dared to go even further than this. Uh, and I was really interested in finding four women who, who pushed the boundaries, uh, four women who lied, seduced, wheedled, plundered, spied, drank, avenged, stolen, murdered their way through the war. Um, and I think I, I succeeded in doing that. I hope so. Um, and so I picked four women, two for the North, two for the South. And my goal was to sort of create a tapestry um, to uh, hopefully tell the story of the Civil War in a way it hadn't been done before. And even if the women don't uh, meet all the time physically, interact physically, although a few of them do, um, it was important to me that there was a connection between their stories. There was a cause and effect. Uh, one woman's behavior would affect another woman's circumstances. Um, and so I hope I, I accomplished that with this book. And uh, without further ado, I will introduce my spies. This is Belle Boyd. Uh, I'm guessing a lot of people here are also familiar with Belle Boyd. Uh, she was 17 years old when the war broke out. She was a Confederate sympathizer living in the Shenandoah Valley, Virginia. And Belle was fascinating to me. She was all id. Uh, she had absolutely no filter, um, not especially not for herself. Um, and just to sort of exemplify that, I'm going to read a very brief letter that she wrote to her cousin when she was about 15 years old, lobbying him to find her a husband. <laughs> I am tall, she wrote. I weigh 106 and a half pounds. My form is beautiful. My eyes are of a dark blue and so expressive. My hair of a rich brown and I think I tie it up nicely. My neck and arms are beautiful and my foot is perfect. <laughs> Only wear size two and a half shoes. My teeth the same pearly whiteness, I think perhaps a little whiter. Nose quite as large as ever, neither Grecian nor Roman, but beautifully shaped. And indeed, I am decidedly the most beautiful of all of your cousins. <laughs> um, so Belle uh, clearly had no uh, problem with self-esteem. And she was really interesting to me because she was, uh, had um, uh, very overt in both her opinions and her sexuality, which was unusual for the time, and especially for a girl of this age. Um, I like to say that uh, if, if Sarah Palin and Miley Cyrus had a 19th century baby, um, it would have been Belle Boyd. Um, and 
So Bell kicks things off in, uh, in July of 1861. Um, it's the 4th of July, and Union soldiers had just won a small skirmish in the Shenandoah Valley, and they're marching down to her hometown of Martinsburg, West Virginia, and they're planning on a, a 4th of July victory parade. And they arrive in Martinsburg, and they begin uh, looting stores and uh, stealing alcohol and barging into homes and generally making themselves home in a, in a, a very uh, sort of brutal way. And one Union uh, soldier and a couple of his friends arrive at Bell's house and announce that they're going to raise a Union flag over her home. Um, and Bell, being the cool, common, collected sort that she is, uh, decides to shoot this fellow dead. Um, and she gets away with it. Uh, she claims self-defense, and she gets away with it. Um, at this time during the war, it was early, and uh, Union generals were still practicing appeasement. They thought the war was going to be over quickly, and the last thing they wanted to do was uh, make this 17-year-old girl a Confederate martyr and, and just sort of start a, a mess there. And so they, they swept it under the rug. And Belle is emboldened by this. <clears throat> Belle is so emboldened that she contacts her relatives in the Confederate Army and convinces them to allow her to become a courier. Um, and Belle also fancies herself a spy. Here's a different side of Belle in that role. Belle is a courier and spy. <clears throat> and Belle was, uh, you know, paradoxically, uh, for somebody who purported to be a spy, she did things to draw attention to herself. Um, first of all, she was a notorious seductress, if you can imagine. Um, one, of her, one of her bows, one of her many conquests, and I filed this under things you can't make up, one of her conquests was named Major Dick Long. <laughs> um, which <laughs> I found hilarious. I'm sure it wasn't that funny in 1861, but I thought it was pretty funny. Um, she also reportedly seduced Union General James Shields um, and was closeted with him for four hours, according to a northern journalist, and subsequently wrapped a rebel flag around his head to celebrate this conquest. Um, and men loved Belle, if you, you can imagine that. Um, they coined some nicknames for her, the Northern Press did. Uh, they called her the Siren of the Shenandoah. And, um, one, but girls, uh, Belle had many teenaged rivals, uh, and the girls did not like Belle as much. And they called her, quote, the fastest girl in Virginia, or anywhere else for that matter. <laughs> um, so that was Belle Boyd. This is Private Frank Thompson, um, who comes into the war with a secret. Uh, Private Frank Thompson was actually a woman named Emma Edmonds, uh, who had been living as a man for two years. Um, and she had a bit of a tragic background. Emma Edmonds was from uh, Canada, where her father was abusive and, and brutal and had threatened to arrange a marriage for her to an elderly neighbor, a farmer. Um, and Emma had seen what these sorts of arranged marriages had done for her older sisters. Um, they sort of dulled their life and, and uh, sucked all the spirit out of them. And Emma was an adventurous sort, and she wanted no part of that life and, and wanted a different path for herself. Um, so one day she decides to cut her hair and bind her breasts and trade in her, uh, uh, bind her breasts, trade in her dress for a men's suit, begins calling herself Frank Thompson um, and migrates to the United States where she becomes an itinerant Bible salesman. And she starts hearing about abolitionist John Brown and the drumbeat of events leading up to the Civil War and decides she wants a piece of this. Uh, she wants a piece of this action. And she goes to Detroit and enlists in uh, the 2nd Michigan as a, as a private. And you might ask yourself, well, how did she pass this medical examination? Uh, which would be a good question. And uh, the, the protocols all across the country dictated that doctors conduct thorough medical examinations. Um, but the truth was that they had quotas to fill, they needed to get the bodies out there quickly. And so the examinations were uh, a bit less than thorough. 
They really only cared if you had uh, fingers to pull triggers, if you had enough teeth to rip off powder cartridges, and if you had the feet to march. Um, so basically, in Emma's case, the doctor merely shook her hand and uh, passed her into the Army as Private Frank Thompson. Um, Emma's second uh, challenge, of course, was uh, you know, she's living in very close quarters for, with men um, for extended periods of time. How did she get away with this? Uh, and I did some research and found that about 400 women for both North and South um, disguised themselves as men and enlisted to fight. And how did they all get away with this? Uh, and I came to the conclusion that it was mostly because nobody had any idea what a woman would look like wearing pants. Um, people were so used to seeing women's bodies pushed and pulled into exaggerated shapes uh, with corsets and crinolines that the very idea of a woman wearing pants was so unfathomable um, that even if she were doing it right in front of your face, you would, might not see it. Um, and even more so if she's wearing an entire army uniform. Um, so Emma had a little bit of an advantage there, but she does not count on, on something, and that is uh, falling in love with a fellow Union soldier, uh, this rather dashing gentleman, uh, another member of the uh, Second Michigan by the name of Jerome Robbins. And so Emma had a bit of a conundrum here. Um, she, she really was falling for Jerome, and she had to decide what to do. She knew the repercussions of, of what would happen if her, if her gender was discovered. Um, would, you know, she could possibly be arrested, she could be charged with prostitution, and she would most certainly be kicked out of the Army, uh, which to Emma would, would have been the worst fate. She really wanted to stay in the Army and fight. And so she had a little bit of a uh, just a, a situation there. Um, she did not know whether to suffer in silence and, and not tell Jerome, you know, how she felt or to she risk everything and tell him who and what she really is and, and let the chips fall where they may. And so their love story is something that plays out throughout the book and, and that I had uh, great fun following. So. This is Rose O'Neill Greenhow, uh, who was another Confederate spy. Um, and she was sort of the grand dame, uh, a, a Confederate woman living in Washington, D.C., the, the federal capital. And her whole life had fallen apart in the years leading up to the war. Um, she had lost five children in four years, if you can imagine that. Um, she had lost her husband in a freak accident. And she had lost her access to the White House. Uh, this is somebody who, through her husband's work, had been connected to high-ranking Democratic politicians for years leading up to the war. Uh, she was even a very close friend and advisor to former President James Buchanan. Um, so with the election of Lincoln and with the Republicans coming into power, she lost all of that. And she was really desperate to regain um, just even a, a bit of her old life. Uh, so in the spring of 1861, when a Confederate captain approached Rose and asked her to run an, uh, a Confederate espionage ring in Washington, D.C., uh, she jumps at the chance. And Rose begins cultivating sources. Uh, and by cultivating, I really mean sleeping with. Um, <laughs> um, and a lot of them were high-ranking northern politicians. Um, among her many reported lovers uh, was a, a union colonel a U.S. Senator from Oregon, and this guy, who is Senator Henry Wilson of Massachusetts, um, who was not only an abolitionist Republican, but also uh, Lincoln's chairman of the Committee on Military Affairs. Uh, so you can imagine they had a, a lot of interesting pillow talk. Um, I'll read just a, a brief snippet of one love letter that was reportedly sent from Henry Wilson to Rose Greenhow. You know that I do love you. I am suffering this morning. In fact, I am sick physically and mentally and know nothing that would soothe me so much as an hour with you. So, uh, useful guy, the senator. No. This is Rose Greenhouse Cipher, which I found in the National Archives in Washington, D.C. 
Um, and I thought it was just a, a fascinating bit, and especially for a, a, a geeky historian, just to get your hands on something like that is, is just really amazing. Um, and the cipher is modeled after the one in Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Gold Bug. Um, and Rose spent hours memorizing these symbols and, and learning how to uh, uh, put together messages for the, for the Confederate Army, for her Confederate contacts. And you can see all the symbols that she had to learn. And Lincoln, uh, you can see Lincoln is sort of down on the left-hand side there, uh, where he's represented by, it looks like an upside-down triangle, a bisected, or an inverted triangle bisected by a slash. Uh, and Link, uh, Rose had two nicknames for President Lincoln. Um, one was Beanpole, and the other was Satan. Um, so uh, no love lost there. Um, and it was really interesting to learn a sort of uh, the, the primitive aspects of espionage that, the, that they also used. Um, if Rose did not have time to put together a, an enciphered message, um, her Confederate sponsor also taught her the Morse code. And so she could uh, raise and lower her blinds uh, and according to the dots and dashes of the Morse code. And at certain points of the day, Confederate scouts might be watching the windows for any messages she might be transmitting in that way. Or if she were out in the street, she could achieve the same effect um, by precisely fluttering her fan um, with dots and dashes of the Morse code. So, um, and she also, um, you saw her daughter here, um, back here, eight-year-old Little Rose. Little Rose would become an important part of her espionage plans too. Uh, this is another uh, sort of geeky find from the National Archives, one of my favorite uh, pieces of, of um, uh, research that I found. Uh, and I should preface this by saying that, that everybody believed, especially in the North, I should say, the North believed that the war would be over in 90 days. This was going to be a short, quick war. Um, they were going to meet the Confederates at Bull Run, Manassas, uh, in, in the uh, summer of 1861. They would move on to Richmond, capture Richmond, and it would all be over. Um, but of course the Confederates had other plans and, and so did Rose Greenhow. So in the weeks leading up to First Manassas, uh, Rose Greenhow summoned a 16-year-old courier by the name of Betty Duvall to her home on Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. I should pause here to say that Rose liked to say that her home was within rifle distance of Lincoln's White House. <laughs> um, and she summons Betty Duvall to her home and has an enciphered dispatch ready to go uh, with information gleaned from her northern sources and, and other places uh, about the Union's plans to march down on Manassas. And she coils this note in this little black scrap of silk um, and wraps it up into Betty's hair and tells her to go on to General Beauregard's headquarters to just pretend that she's a simple farm girl passing through, you know, on her way home for the market, and the Union sentries would just, would never suspect a pretty girl of any sort of mischief like that, and would let her go on, and sure enough, they did. And Betty Duvall makes her way to General Beauregard's headquarters, uh, undoes her hair in romantic and dramatic fashion, and produces this note um, that I think at least uh, confirmed the information that the Confederates uh, were, were thinking what the Union was going to do. And so they were well aware of the Union's plans when they intended a march and how many men they had. And so the, the uh, Confederates were ready at Bull Run. And of course, we all know what happened there. <laughs> the Confederates had a, a shocking victory and, and uh, lived to fight another uh, four years. So. Uh, this is one of my favorite pictures uh, from Bull Run. Um, the, all of the, the sort of society people from Washington, D.C. Uh, were so certain of a Union victory at Bull Run that they, they treated the battle as a, just a, a sort of chance to, uh, they were spectators. It was if they were going to watch a sport. 
Uh, they brought picnic baskets and champagne, uh, rating the toast a union victory. And of course, uh, once things started getting really ugly, uh, they began to flee. And there were just some great descriptions about parasols being left behind and shawls and champagne glasses being broken and everything just in mayhem. And of course, many of them in their haste to flee uh, drowned in Bull Run Creek on the way back to their Washington, D.C. Uh, but this, of course, is uh, taken before all of that began, before the chaos. This is Elizabeth Van Loo, uh, who was, as everybody here knows, a Union spy living in the ca Confederate capital of Richmond. And she was sort of the opposite of Rose Greenhow, um, where Rose Greenhow was a celebrated beauty. Um, Elizabeth Van Loo, uh, according to one contemporary, was, quote, never as pretty as her portrait showed. Um, <laughs> yeah, rare. <laughs> um, so poor, poor Elizabeth. Uh, and, and whereas Rose was really brazen and outspoken, um, Elizabeth was quiet and deftly cunning and I, I think flew under the radar in, in very ingenious ways. Um, and if anybody's not familiar with her background, um, she was born in Richmond, but she went north to be educated. She was uh, schooled in Philadelphia and came under care of an abolitionist governess um, and brought those ideals back with her um, when she returned to Richmond and was uh, really motivated by that. And, and um, sort of held those ideal, ideals very dear to her. Um, when her father died, she decided to free all of the family slaves and also spent quite a bit of her substantial inheritance buying slaves just for the express purpose of freeing them. Um, and before the war broke out, you know, neighbors sort of looked at Elizabeth funny. They, they were wary of her. She, they thought she was estranged. She was this spinster woman living alone, you know, with her mother on Churchill in Richmond and just sort of an odd character. But after the war broke out, it was quite dangerous for, for Elizabeth to have these out, uh, abolitionist views and for people to know her background. And, and um, she received death threats. Uh, Confederate detectives followed her everywhere. Um, and uh, it was quite a, a dangerous uh, situation for her. Uh, but nevertheless, she decided to go ahead with her plans to build a, a union espionage ring in Richmond. And she started recruiting people from all walks of life, uh, including her brother. This is John Van Loo. Um, and it was quite uh, interesting to me. I, I was fortunate enough to connect with, um, with uh, descendants of John Van Loo. He had two daughters, um, and I connected with the grandson of one of these daughters. Um, and so it was uh, the, the grandson of Elizabeth's niece. And he told me some never-before-published information and insight into Elizabeth's incredible operation. Um, and a lot of it had to do with how John Van Loo uh, used his family business. Um, he had inherited the Van Loo business, which was a hardware business, uh, quite prominent in Richmond and successful. And he would take blank invoices and purchase orders um, and fill them out in ways that, that looked legitimate. Um, but each number he wrote down on these blank invoices and purchase orders corresponded to certain military terminology. Uh, for example, uh, 370 iron hinges might mean 3,700 cavalry. 30 anvils might mean 30 batteries of artillery. 40 vices might mean 4,000 battle-hardened shock troops. Um, and so, you know, he, he coded this all very ingeniously. And by the time he would reach, um, if, when he crossed over the lines, the, the Confederate guards, you know, would look at these papers and not see anything suspicious. But he was able to make the information quite clear to the Union uh, officials once he made it past the lines and in the Union territory. Um, so they had this sort of uh, operation developing, and what made all of this even more dangerous was the fact that John Van Loo was married to an ardent Confederate sympathizer who lived um, with Elizabeth in the, the Churchill Mansion. All of them were living under the same roof, 
So they're conducting all of this, um, you know, right under the nose of not only Confederate detectives who were suspicious of them, but somebody, a member of their own family, who would not have hesitated to turn, in, turn them into Confederate authorities if she suspected anything uh, was going on. So that, that's also something that plays out throughout the war. Uh, this is Verena Davis, the, the first lady of the Confederacy. Um, and this was Elizabeth's most ingenious move and probably her most controversial as well, if, uh, if anybody is familiar with this history at all. Um, the story goes that uh, Verena Davis put out a call for servants. You know, she had newly moved into the Confederate White House and, and needed staff. And Elizabeth decided to pay her a social call. And she says, well, I have a girl for you. She's not very bright. Um, she stumbles in the kitchen, but I think she'll serve your purpose as well, and I'll send her over to, to work for you. And Verena Davis agrees to this. Uh, and little does anybody know that Mary Jane Bowser, the woman who Elizabeth sends over, this remarkable woman, uh, was a, a former family slave of the Van Loos, um, who Elizabeth had freed when she was just a young girl, and she had stayed with the family, and Elizabeth had sent her um, a, a, around the country. Um, to be educated. So little does anybody know that Mary Jane Bowser is not only uh, literate, but highly educated and gifted with a photographic memory. Um, so while she's dusting Jefferson Davis's desk, she's also sneaking peeks at his maps on his desk, reading letters, uh, sneaking glimpses of uh, fortification plans, um, and even eavesdropping on his com confidential conversations he's having with his uh, advisors and reporting all of this back to Elizabeth. Uh, so uh, quite an interesting and important source for Elizabeth to have in the, in the Confederate White House. And, um, and as you can imagine, that, that, uh, that, that danger would only increase, too, as the war went on. This is uh, Stonewall Jackson, who probably needs no introduction. But I thought he was a, a fascinating guy, uh, one of my favorite Civil War characters. He was sort of my Civil War boyfriend. Um, and, and he, uh, you know, Belle Boyd, it should, it should go without saying, was obsessed with him. Um, there, there was a, a, you know, he was sort of the civil, the rock star of the Civil War, uh, and and people, you know, flocked to him. Women followed him. Uh, they hounded him. They they would corner him. Uh, they grabbed for his buttons and kept them as souvenirs. He was sort of a, a, a rock star of the era. And Belle Boyd was especially obsessed with him. Um, and there was a great story about her running into Stonewall Jackson in the Shenandoah Valley in a hotel lobby. Um, where, where Jackson was, and of course um, the throngs of women are gathered around him, and Belle bides her time, and she approaches him, um, and 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 uh, you know he they have a brief exchange, and he says, "Ladies, ladies, this is the very first time I've been surrounded by the enemy." Um, <laughs> so kind of a smooth uh, smooth exchange there, um, but Belle was especially enamored with him from that point on. And uh, she is determined to get his uh, attention in 1862 to make him notice her, uh, which makes for some very interesting developments, especially during his uh, Valley campaign in the spring of that year. So. Uh, this is General George McClellan, um, who was sort of Stonewall's counterpart, at least for a while in the North, the sort of rock star of the North. Um, he was brought in to lead the uh, Eastern Theater, the Army of the Potomac, uh, the Army in the Eastern Theater, um, after the disastrous defeat at Bull Run. Um, and he was charged with whipping these men into shape and, uh, and sort of uh, building up morale after their unexpected loss. And uh, General George McClellan, as you could probably tell from this photograph, um, was a bit of an egomaniac. Uh, he's here, you know, imitating Napoleon. Uh, and he used to tell stories about his own strength. Um, he told people that uh, he could bend a quarter between his thumb and forefinger um, and that he could also lift a 250-pound man over his head. Uh, 
I don't know, I doubt these were true, but he, McClellan liked to say them. He also liked to say that God himself had sent McClellan to save the Union. It was, it was ordained by God. Um, and all of his soldiers, including Emma Edmonds, who fought directly under McClellan, uh, adored him. And I think this was mostly because McClellan did not want to send them into battle. <laughs> so, of course, they were going to adore McClellan. He wasn't, he wasn't sending them to fight. Uh, but the men did adore him. And, uh, but he clashed constantly with President Lincoln. Um, he used to say that Lincoln was, quote, nothing more than a well-meaning baboon, um, which, of course, would cause some problems later on in the war as, as the two clashed over military strategy quite frequently. This is one of my favorite uh, cartoons from the Civil War. Uh, it was called Crinoline and Quinine. Um, and just to give you a little bit of background on this cartoon, uh, it's, it's, it's referring to the Union blockade, uh, which was a main proponent of Union strategy, the idea of, of blocking 3,500 miles of Confederate coastline um, and essentially starving the Southern people of food, supplies, clothing, coffee, sugar, uh, weapons, medicine, anything that not only the soldiers would need to survive, but also the civilian population, just sort of uh, just starving them out of everything they might need. And it was incredibly effective, um, so effective that a very sophisticated smuggling business, uh, you know, popped up in, to sort of answer this and to counteract the, the effects. Uh, and this is one of my favorite cartoons because it celebrates Southern women's abilities uh, to run the inland blockade. Um, and you can imagine how they used their clothing for this. Uh, here's a picture of a woman with her crinoline. Uh, which was a rigid cage-like structure that at its apex could reach a diameter of six feet. Um, and so you can imagine all manner of goods that could be tied to the crinoline <laughs> and, and hidden under your skirts. Uh, just to give you one little anecdote, uh, one woman managed to conceal inside her hoop skirt a roll of army cloth, several pairs of cavalry boots, a roll of crimson flannel, packages of gilt braid and sewing silk, cans of preserved meats, and a bag of coffee. That was the contraband tally for a single crossing, um, if you can imagine. And Belle Boyd was sort of the queen of the inland blockade. She, she did this quite often. Uh, and she specialized in smuggling quinine and weapons. Uh, and she talked about how at night, you know, she was always visiting Union camps. And for some reason, Union men loved her. Um, and she, at night, when all of them were sleeping, she would go around and, and pick up unattended sabers and pistols, hide them under her skirts, and, and uh, you know, get them ready for passing on to the southern lines. And she recruited a whole army of women to do this along with her. And, you know, these women, when, when moving, working together as a group, were quite effective and prolific at this smuggling. Um, one day in fall of 1861, uh, the 28th Pennsylvania woke up to find that 200 sabers, 400 pistols, cavalry equipment for 200 men, and 1,400 muskets were missing. <laughs> so, and that was, that was just one, that was just the 28th Pennsylvania. So, um, so it was sort of a, a fascinating part of women's roles in the Civil War, um, taking society's constructs about womanhood and perceived weaknesses and, and really brilliantly exploiting them. Um, and they use their gender as both a physical and psychological disguise. Uh, you know, physically, they're hiding things literally on their person, um, on their, in their hoop skirts and up in their hair. And psychologically, you know, if anybody ever accused these women of treasonous activity or of, of espionage or anything uh, untoward, the, the usual response was, how dare you? How dare you accuse me of such behavior? I am a defenseless woman. Um, and of course, these women were anything but defenseless. But usually, the accuser was taken aback and chagr properly chagrined and, and slunk away with his tail between his legs. It was, it was really quite an effective response. So. 
Uh, this is another interesting find. Uh, this was from the Museum of the Confederacy, the American Civil War Museum. Um, and this is a doll named Lucy Ann. And the story behind Lucy Ann was that she was reportedly used to smuggle quinine uh, during the Civil War. Quinine was a very important medicine that, uh, used to combat malaria. And the story was that uh, mothers would tuck little oil, uh, quinine wrapped in oil sacks and tuck it inside the head of this doll. It's made of paper mache. And they would give the dolls to their daughters and just say, you know, walk quietly through the lines, don't say anything, and, and um, you know, this is just your doll. And so it was another way that mothers used uh, the, the innocence of their children to escape any suspicion from, the, from, from Union guards. Um, and uh, so th that was a, another uh, one from the files of smuggling during the Civil War. Uh, this <laughs> is a, a very interesting um, uh, piece of Civil War history that I had never even thought of when I, when I first began my research. Uh, and the, uh, the curator of the Museum of the Confederacy, Kathy Wright, who is here today, that um, actually told me this story uh, when I visited. Uh, one woman re came into the museum one day with this little contraption, and she said that it was, uh, had come from her Confederate ancestor. Um, and that he had used it to smuggle either quinine or, or uh, maybe dispatches wrapped in a very tiny scroll and tucked into here. It's, a, it's a very, actually a very small apparatus, so not much could be held in there, but I guess you, if you were inventive, you could, you could fit something in there. Um, and he, she said that he hid it in the place least likely to be searched. Um, and if anybody's familiar with the scene in Pulp Fiction, uh, where Christopher Walken talks about the watch that he hid for generations uh, to, to pass on this family heirloom. Um, this is about the same idea with this little contraption. Uh, and the woman who came into the Museum of the Confederacy called this the anal acorn. Um, uh, I don't think, another one that never made the history books, but still an uh, important piece of history nonetheless. Uh, and this was, I thought, the creepiest cartoon I ever came across uh, in my research. And it also pertains to the uh, inland, to running the blockade. Um, by, as the war went on, uh, the blockade kept tightening and uh, the, the effects upon the southern civilians were, and the soldiers uh, were desperate, increasingly desperate. People were starving. Uh, businesses and schools shut down. Um, nobody could afford to pay teachers or provide uh, you know, the, the approved Confederate textbooks um, that were studied throughout the South. Um, and prices kept rising. Uh, by 1864, and I thought this was a remarkable statistic, by 1864, bacon was $20 a pound. Um, and, and that's about $302 in today's money for a pound of bacon. Um, it's a 6,700% uh, increase uh, from before the war. So Southerners, understandably, were very angry about this. Uh, and here's a cartoon that reflects their anger. Um, and at the top left, uh, the, this is uh, a bunch of items that they sort of uh, wishful thinking, items that they wish could be smuggled through the blockade, items they wish they, that were available in mass that they could smuggle. Um, the upper left one shows a goblet made from a Yankee skull. Um, below that, there's a necklace of Yankee teeth. Um, next one is a paperweight made of Yankee jawbones. Um, and there's some other similarly gruesome items. Um, and of course, most of these were wishful thinking. Um, the, these items actually did not exist, uh, but there were some reports of, uh, of people wearing jewelry made of Yankee bones. Um, so there, there was at least a little bit of, of truth behind this. This is uh, Detective Alan Pinkerton, the famous detective uh, standing here with President Lincoln. 
and I was quite delighted when he made an appearance. I, I didn't know that he had done a secret, I knew that he had thwarted a, an attempt on Lincoln's uh, life early on, or rumored to have done so, but, but he was hired um, by the United States to do some secret service work for the Union um, early on in the war. And his first uh, role was to conduct a stakeout on suspected spy Rose Greenhow. Uh, and it, it made for one of my favorite scenes in the book. Um, it was a, a torrential downpour. This is in the summer of 1861, shortly after the Battle of Bull Run, when everybody is wondering if Rose Greenhow had a hand in this. Uh, the rumors are that she did, and, and Lincoln is sent to investigate this. Um, so he uh, takes two of his best detectives and conducts a stakeout on Rose Greenhow's home on Lafayette Square. And it is a torrential downpour. And in order for him to see into Rose Greenhow's window, he has to stand on his detective's shoulders uh, so, uh, and uh, peer in there. And so what does he see? But Rose Greenhow is sitting on her sofa uh, with somebody that Pinkerton recognizes as a union captain. <laughs> so she's sitting on her sofa with a traitorous union captain. Um, and this makes Pinkerton furious. Uh, and then Rose Greenhow starts uh, passionately kissing this union captain, which uh, it further infuriates Pinkerton. Um, and he declares Rose Greenhow public enemy number one. Uh, and there's a very interesting cat and mouse uh, chase that then ensues um, between Rose Greenhow and Alan Pinkerton. Um, and it was another uh, fascinating insight into women's roles during the Civil War. Uh, the idea of female traitors had been unthinkable uh, before the war began. You know, women were victims of war. They weren't perpetrators of war. And so now they had to contend with the idea that, you know, women were not only capable of treasonous activity, but they were capable of executing it more deftly than men. And the North had no idea what to do with this information. Uh, one Lincoln official had this great quote, and he said, quote, what are we going to do with these fashionable women spies? <laughs> and, and it was a problem for them and, and something that they would have to grapple with throughout the war, uh, had, had to handle these women and, and their, their treasonous behavior. This, um, I will start by saying, uh, you know, there were several spies I had to leave on the cutting room floor. You know, I found their stories very fascinating, but for one reason or another, they, they really couldn't fit into the narrative. Uh, and this character here falls into that category. Uh, his name is Benjamin Franklin Stringfellow. And he worked for Jeb Stewart, uh, Confederate General Jeb Stewart. Uh, uh, Stringfellow had blonde hair, blue, -eyed, uh, blue eyes, and weighed 94 pounds. Uh, he was rumored to have a waist like a girl's, according to one comrade. And he used to uh, go about his spying in a rather uh, a different manner. He would dress in elaborate ball gowns and call himself Sally Martin and go to Union military balls. Um, and he would uh, act very demurely and, and wait for the Union soldiers to ask him to dance. Um, and while he was dancing with his partners, he would glean all the information he could about Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> Um, and asking very uh, innocent-sounding questions, but really, you know, having ulterior motives. And I like to include uh, Mr. Stringfellow here just to prove that uh, women were not the only ones cross-dressing during the Civil War. <laughs> you know, the men, <laughs> the men were in on that action too. Okay. Suspense. This is one of my lady spies um, disguised as a slave. Um, and it was really interesting to research the different disguises that people would, uh, would take on when they went undercover. Um, there, were, there, was, there was somebody who removed his glass eye, somebody else feigned epileptic fits, there were people who faked stuttering, people who feigned limps, um, there were people who dressed as uh, doctors carrying you know, their little black bag, which of course was not full of medical equipment, but full of dispatches and probably other, other uh, uh, fruits of their espionage. 
Um, and some people disguise themselves as slaves. And I think the same mindset was as w at work where uh, just as nobody s expected a woman to disguise herself as a man, nobody expected to disguise, uh, anyone to disguise themselves as a slave. And they would use either uh, silver nitrate or um, cork, burnt cork, to darken their skin. And, um, and, you know, this was all well and good and usually worked for quite a while until it either started raining <laughs> or became excessively hot. <laughs> And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, the, the person disguised, uh, you know, started losing their disguise and their skin started showing through, um, which is what happens to Emma Edmonds, who was here, uh, to my spy, um, during one particular undercover mission. And I'm just going to read a very brief excerpt of, of that and uh, to show you what kind of situation Emma was in when she was disguised as a slave and, and was fearful that it was not going to hold for long enough. Um, she, I'll just give you a little bit of background on this. She, it's 1862 during the Peninsula Campaign, and she's sent to do some reconnaissance around Yorktown um, in the spring of 1862, disguised as a slave. The overseer furnished Emma with a pickaxe, shovel, and wheelbarrow. She watched the other slaves and followed their lead, pushing a load of gravel, the smallest she could get away with, up a narrow plank to the parapet. It was an arduous task for even the strongest man, each hoist of the shovel and stab of the axe grating against her skin, and by dusk she was raw from wrist to fingertips. If she wasn't able to work at all the next day, the rebel officers would discover her deception. An idea struck. She paid a fellow slave to switch places. She would carry water for the troops while he built the fortification. She took advantage of her new position, roaming freely about the camp, occasionally ducking behind a tree to sketch fortifications and jot down the number of mounted guns, 151 in all. Lingering with one brigade, she overheard snatches of talk about the arriving Confederate reinforcements and was thrilled to glimpse Robert E. Lee. The men whispered that the general had come to inspect the Yankee fortifications and that he had pronounced it impossible to hold Yorktown after McClellan opened his siege guns upon it. Another rumor claimed that the Confederates planned to evacuate Yorktown, the final piece of intelligence Emma needed. She had to return to her own camp before someone realized she was not what she seemed to be. For the next two days, Emma carried water, listened, and waited for a chance to escape. She was losing her disguise. Her scalp itched, her wool wigs shifted askew, the silver nitrate peeled away to reveal patches of pale flesh. One slave studied her quizzically and joked to another, I'll be darned if that fellow ain't turning white. <laughs> she panicked and fumbled for a response. Well, gentlemen, she said, I always expected to come white sometime. My mother's a white woman. While they laughed, she backed away, one foot behind the other, until she scuttled out of sight. Uh, so that's, uh, that's it for my slideshow. If anybody has any questions or uh, wants to tell any stories about their own ancestors' interesting contraptions, <laughs> I'd, love to, uh, I'd love to hear your uh, thoughts. Oh, thanks. Very entertaining uh, about these, uh, the feminists. What was the uh, normal response on either side to catching male spies, and did they catch out any female spies? That's a good question. Uh, well, the, the Timothy Webster was a Union spy who was executed by the Confederates um, in 1862. He was the first spy executed since Nathaniel Hill during the Revolutionary War, so um, it was a big deal, obviously. Um, and um, for the Confederates to do that. And that's actually when Emma Edmonds, uh, the spy I just read about, when she stepped in and was recruited by the Union to, uh, to do some espionage work. 
Um, and so the, the, the both sides were, of course, more brutal with the men. Um, it, was, it was easier, of course, to torture and kill men than it was for women. They, they, as I said, they just didn't know how to handle the women. Um, and, and the women uh, do run into some legal issues and some problems with authorities on both sides. Uh, and uh, and it, the, the, their stories all play out throughout the book. It would take me another 10 minutes to, to really uh, go into the, the details of which happens to each of them. So um, I, would, I would hope that the book itself would be more interesting than me blathering on about it up here. But. Hi. Was a cousin of mine. And after the war, there was a price on his head. He fled to Canada. He was later... Uh, pardoned, came back, and became an Episcopal minister. My grandparents lived in Powhatan. My grandfather fought at age 16. But after the war, uh, the Reverend Stringfellow uh, used to have a circuit of churches that he preached at. And one of them was Emmanuel Church in Powhatan. And when he was there, he always stayed with my grandfather. My oh, and my father said he knew Cousin Frank well. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Did you have any more pictures? Did you have any pictures of Frank dressed up like Sally Markson? Well, that picture is on one of his, the cover of one of his books. Uh -huh. And uh, there are several books written yeah. about him. And that picture was in one of the books. Yeah, fascinating character. Thank you for that. Uh, he was known as a small man, but an expert swordsman. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he he was my favorite male spy. I think. Yeah, I, I like that he wasn't a, he wasn't afraid to put on the ladies' clothes. Oh. Evidently, he was a great storyteller. Yeah. My father was fascinated by him. <laughs> That's great. Did Mary, Ann, Mary Jane Bowser ever write anything? I know she became a teacher yeah. in um, Georgia after the war. Right. Were there ever any memoirs that you were in across? That's a great question and, and sort of was the, the, the most frustrating, uh, one of the most frustrating uh, roadblocks I came across in my research. Uh, Mary Jane Bowser wrote a few letters in which she referenced um, her work for the Union uh, as a spy, and there were um, other people who also referenced it in letters. And she reportedly wrote a diary, kept a diary of her activities uh, while she was in the Confederate White House. And one of her relatives, or, or one of her descendants, reportedly burned, just threw it out in the 1950s, just tossed it out with the trash. Um, not realizing what it was. Uh, so Mary Jane Bowser's, the, the, the exact details of her, uh, Mary Jane Bowser's work in the White House uh, are not able to be verified. But I did piece together um, a few more details uh, from uh, John Van Loo's uh, descendant. Um, and so I, I, I was able to add a few more details, but not nearly as much as I wish I could have if, if I, and would I would have been able to had I had uh, Mary Jane Bowser's diary. but. Unfortunately, her family did not <laughs> did not take uh, take notice of what what they had there. So. Yeah, why do you suppose that Elizabeth Van Lu, who was so vilified in Richmond, remained in Richmond for the rest of her life for all those decades instead of going to Boston or somewhere? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I I think. Um, and it's complicated, and I think it has to do not only with her internal, uh, with her external circumstances, but also with her, her mental state after the war. 
she was, um, as many people here probably know, given a job by Ulysses S. Grant after the war as postmistress of w Richmond. And for a while was very happy doing that and was a fairly lucrative job and prestigious one, especially for a woman to have at that time. Uh, and I think she was really trying to, uh, you know, the thing about Elizabeth, she, she really considered herself a loyal Richmonder and a loyal Virginian. Um, and she didn't understand. One of the things she wrote in her own diary was that loyalty became treason uh, when the Civil War broke out. You know, people who you know had all you know loyalty suddenly overnight with the you know just with secession with the flare of a pen uh, became treason. Um, and I think she her dream was to be able to stay in Richmond and be able to stay in Virginia and have it return to what what she thought it once was and be comfortable there again. Um, and she just uh, and by the time that she realized that wasn't going to happen. Uh, she was destitute. Um, she had lost a lot of her money. She didn't have that federal job anymore. And I think she became agoraphobic, uh, was afraid to leave her house. Uh, you know, she had received death threats not only during the war, but after the war. Um, and uh, as she aged, I, I think all of these things just started weighing upon her and, until she really felt immobile and uh, had no choice but just to just try to stay and ride it out as best as she could. And uh, a tragic ending for such a brilliant and brave woman. Um, but, but I think that's, that's what happened. I'm, I'm Tim Wood. My great-grandmother, Rucker, in Northern Virginia when she was a young lady and had the hoop skirt, her boyfriend was on leave and came up to, to see her. The Yankee cavalry rode up and anything that was anything had to be hidden quickly. <laughs> she stood by the mule post at the bottom of the steps and hid her boyfriend under her hoop skirt. <laughs> That's fantastic. Now, <laughs> well. but the story doesn't end there. <laughs> That's great. The, I think that's more impressive than Belle Boyd and her sabers and pistols. Even. Well, the Yankees went through the room splitting open some of this, uh, the skirts. And she just stared this man down and oh. just looked at him. You just dare touch oh me. God. At any rate, he, he became so uh, discombobulated by her stare, he turned and they all, they all retreated. But at any rate, the hoop skirt was big enough to hide her future husband. <laughs> That's great. Oh. Thank you all so much. Thank you.